everyone, welcome to another episode of the life of David and me. My name is Jonathan Chen. I'm so glad that you can join me today as we continue our journey in this series through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and a little bit of 1 Kings. Before we begin, let us start off with a video clip and we'll be right back. Ah, I'm going to be real with you, all right? I'm not like the, the best dragon, you know. But you saved the world. I, I did do that. That's, that's true. But have you ever done like a group project, but there's like that one kid who didn't pitch in as much, but still ended up with the same grade? Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, defines free rider as this. A person who obtains a benefit at another's expense or without the usual cost or effort. We all have experienced a free rider in our lives, have we not? So how should a Christian respond to a possible free rider? Or should a Christian even use the term free rider on anyone? That's what we'll be talking about today as we continue our Life of David and Me series with chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. So let's begin with the problem. Verse 1. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. They had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk about stoning him. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Okay. We may not have Amalekites raid our homes and perform a Pirates of the Caribbean type of plundering on us. But if I want to contemporize this and try to make this story applicable for all of us today, let's say that you're faced with a project or a task or a problem or a crisis at work that needs to be resolved. And it involves not just you, but a team of people. And these people are completely different from you. Maybe they're from different departments. Maybe they're just different in personality. And maybe they're different in work ethic. Maybe they're completely outside of your company or organization. Or worse, maybe they're family and in-laws. Regardless, David and his men arrived at a problem and they need to address it together. Just like us, as we address things together as a team to a problem. So, what else can we take from this passage? David's leadership was questioned, and not just questioned, but in jeopardy because his soldiers were ready to stone him. When I am involved in a team, whether I'm the leader or not, one of the biggest hurdles to overcome is to have my teammates trust me. During a crisis, what is the first thing that people tend to do? Blame. Easiest target, of course, is the leader. But really, everybody starts blaming each other. So what does David do that we Christians need to do first and foremost when trust is being jeopardized and people are starting to blame on each other? Pray. 
Pray for strength. Pray for strength mentally, physically, and spiritually. I don't know what David prayed because I wasn't there. But for me, I would definitely pray for patience, a kind and generous heart, wisdom and empathy, and lower down my temper. For me, those are the important building blocks of gaining trust from my team. Then in the same prayer, we see God's guidance for David. In verse 7, Then he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it. Then David asked the Lord, Should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, Yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. Notice that the Lord did not tell David where the Amalekites are. We'll get to that. So David and his 600 men set out, and they came to the brook Bessor. In previous chapters, we wondered if David's predicament, current predicament, in, it was due to him allying with the Philistines. And whether allying with the Philistines was actually guided by God, or did God make the best of David's pragmatic choices so that he could continue to keep his promise with David? Either way, finally David, at this juncture, is again returning to God and seeking his guidance through prayer. So, after seeking God's guidance, he suits up all 600 men and starts off in a general location without really knowing where to go exactly. And this causes some consequences. In verse 10, But 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook. So David continued the pursuit with 400 men. Searching and hunting day and night, and not to mention, the same 600 men just came off a military campaign, right? These guys were freakishly tired. Now, 200 of David's men were completely exhausted and couldn't go any further. They might have had injuries sustained from the previous military campaign. Who knows? But they were exhausted and couldn't continue on. So David... Let them, to, let them stay at the brook to take care of the supplies while the rest of the 400 continued on. Verse 11. Along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. They also gave him part of a fig cake and two clusters of raisins, for he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days and nights. Before long, his strength returned. Let's ask ourselves this question. Who are David's men? We know that they're Israelites, but who are they with regards to the type of people they are? Misfits, outcasts, poor, they were heavily in debt, socially awkward, basically people that you wouldn't find in a normal context. So it's not a surprise that David and his men welcomed the near-dead Egyptian man into their company and cared for him. This detail in this story plays a very important role in this entire whole story. But just to make a notable point, God's people at this moment were not just any Israelite. God's people at this moment were David and his men. A bunch of misfits, rejects, and outcasts. They were not wealthy people. 
They were not even middle class people. They were not well dressed or even clean for that matter. They were misfits. Just like Jesus calling misfits his disciples, David calls misfits into his company, God's company. All 600 misfits. That's something for all of us to remember today as a church. As a church, are we welcoming misfits into God's fellowship of believers? Or do we subconsciously or consciously filter out those who we do not like or those who are just not like us? Or for people who we are uncomfortable, uncomfortable to associate with, whether it be social class, personality, or even ethnicity. God's grace and love is for every human being. And here we see that in and here we see that in action through David and his men. Verse 13. To whom do you belong and where do you come from? David asked him. I am an Egyptian, the slave and an Amalekite, he replied. My master abandoned me three days ago because I was sick. We were on our way back from raiding the Carathites in the Negev, the territory of Judah, and the land of Caleb, and we had just burned Ziklag. Ooh, this is the guy, eh? Will you lead me to this band of raiders? David asked. The young man replied, If you take an oath in God's name that you will not kill me or give me back to my master, then I will guide you to them. So he led David to them, and they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines and the land of Judah. Technically, after saying that he was with the Amalekites, the Egyptian should have been dead. But David knew better for this was the opportunity for him and his men to head the right direction towards the Amalekites. And fortunately for the Egyptian, David and his men were very similar to him and outcasts, so they promised him to protect him. The Egyptian led them directly to the Amalekites, who were literally punch drunk, partying and scattered across the fields. Uh, just use your imagination on this one. Using, well, using David and, David and his men's wives and children as entertainment. Again, use your imagination on this one. Let's move on to verse 17. David and his men rushed in among them and slaughtered them throughout that night and the entire day, next day until evening. None of the Amalekites escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. David got back everything the Amalekites had taken and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He also recovered all the flocks and herds and his men drove them ahead of their other livestock. This plunder belongs to David, they said. What perfect timing, eh? To attack your enemies when they're drunk and half asleep. The military campaign was successful and David and his men recovered everything. It's interesting that there were 400 Amalekites who escaped on camels, which meant that there were more of them than David and his men. So this entire story has God's providence written all over it, right? David and his men didn't know where to go to find the Amalekites until they found an Egyptian. And I must say, even though it's not written in scripture, I'm sure that God provided this Egyptian man to David, for David, so that they could find these Amalekites. 
And then what provision of God to give them this timing to attack their enemies while they were punch drunk and just strewn out across the fields. This is all of God's providence, right? Let's move on to verse 21. Then David returned to the brook Besser and met up with the 200 men who had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go with him. They went out to meet David and his men and David greeted them joyfully. But some evil troublemakers among David's men said, they didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder we recovered. Give them their wives and children and tell them to be gone. Free riders! Why should they get their stuff back? David joyfully greeted the 200 men that stayed be- who stayed behind because they were taking care of the supplies. As he was greeting them, some of the 400 men who went on and fought with him against the Amalekites began judging the 200 as free riders because, hey, They shirked. They didn't come with us. They didn't do the same amount of work we put in. They felt that protecting the supplies did not deserve the same privileges as fighting the Amalekites. The effort was not equal in their eyes. These are the same men, though, who were misfits, outcasts, and those who didn't want them around. And now we see that they turned on their own company, accusing them of not putting out the effort. They accused their own company of free riding. What did David say then? Verse 23. But David said, No, my brothers, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and helped us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We share and share alike those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. From then on, David made this a decree and regulation for Israel, and it is still followed today. David saw everything they had, they had belonged to God. Their victory over the Amalekites belonged to God because God enabled them to be victorious. If it wasn't for God providing the Egyptian man along the way, David and his men would still be wandering around the wilderness looking for the Amalekites. David saw everything belonged to God and given by God. And he reminded his men of who they were. They were outcasts, nobodies, poor, indebted. And when David received them, they experienced God's grace. Grace meaning receiving blessings that they didn't deserve. So then, David is asking them, Why are you talking like this as if what you own is measured by effort? For it wasn't by effort, but by God's grace that we have all these things. Therefore, everyone, David says, in our company should have equal share of the God's blessing for God intended to show his grace to everyone. Let's conclude. When I encounter a free rider, whether it be in my work, school, family, or even at play, I get angry, right? I did all the work and they get all the benefits. However, as a Christian, how should I approach this? I should approach this the same way as how a God approached me with grace. Look, let's be honest. I did not die on the cross for my salvation, nor did any of you. We didn't earn our salvation based on our efforts and hard work. It was by God's grace that we were able to have access to salvation by believing in Jesus the Messiah. Therefore, when we encounter a free rider, we don't judge like David's men did. We show grace as David did. And one way is to not judge whether they are free riding or not. We can't use that word in any of our vocabulary, because it doesn't matter. They're human, just like us, 
who God loves and wants to shower grace upon them. We might say, but wait, John, isn't that unfair? The free riders are getting the same rewards and accolades as me, yet they didn't put any effort. Or worse, because of their smooth talk, they get more rewards and accolades than me. True, it's definitely a shitty feeling when this happens. David's men, who went and fought the Amalekites, felt the same way. But David reminded his men, and also us, that ultimately, everything, the rewards, the accolades, the promotions, the careers, the salaries, the grades, the clients, the investments, the houses, the whatever, everything is given by God and belongs to God. And he is ultimately the one who will decide what is fair and what is not. God defines that word fairness. He shows grace to everyone, and he determines how this grace is shown to each of us. Let me say this again. God shows grace to everyone. He determines how this grace is shown to each of us. And he determines what is best for us. We are not to judge a supposed free rider, but to show love and grace while remembering that everything we have belongs to God. And what we have is what God has already determined is best for us. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.